What's up, everybody? This is former Saints wide receiver Lance Moore, and today I am inside the hive. All right. Thank you, Lance, for, for watching here to a very special episode of Inside the Hive. First person from really outside the hive to venture inside the hive. That's pretty cool for us to land someone like you to come on the show here today. So thank you for taking some time out of your very busy day to come talk to us. This is a special day for us inside the hive. We're doing a double podcast filming today, two episodes, you and our superintendent later today. So a very busy day for the boys. And uh, hopefully we have a lot of good insight from you today. So Joel, get us started here. All right, for sure. So Lance, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, so uh, I'm former NFL player, but uh, back to the beginning, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, um, the son of a martial arts instructor. Uh, my dad actually still owns and runs a dojo today. Um, so we're talking, you know, 40 plus years, um, you know, in the business, uh, myself and, and uh, my younger brother basically grew up in the dojo uh, from the time we were three years old, got our black belts, did the competing thing all over the country and um, obviously enjoyed martial arts, but wanted to kind of venture off and do other things. We started playing, you know, basically every sport, um, you know, basketball, baseball, wrestling, gymnastics. I mean, you name it. And, and um, coincidentally, football ended up being the last sport that we played. Um, you know, we play it in the neighborhood, pick up football, which is something that you really don't see these days anymore. Um, but that was mm -hmm. became kind of our passion. And I don't I don't know if it was because we started playing it last. Um, but, um, you know, we were both very, very athletic um, and, and good in pretty much all the sports. But um, football became the one that we were really good. And I, I mentioned my brother because my brother actually played in the NFL for a second and then for eight years in the Canadian Football League. So, um, you know, started with the martial arts background, played every sport, um, grew up in Columbus, went to Westerville South High School. Um, I was, you know, all, all world in high school, all state, broke a bunch of state records in Ohio. Um, and still with that, I, I was not um, offered any scholarships um, until you know, two or three weeks before I graduated from high school, um, I started to get a couple of offers. And um, for me, all it was all was right in the world. I was I was planning on walking on at Ohio State. Um, and luckily, I didn't have to do that because those scholarship offers came in and um, I ended up at Toledo where um, I you know, played there for four years. Um, you know, all kinds of accolades again. I mean, I was all American as a senior. I was first team academic all American as a senior. So I was just as devoted to my studies as I was my craft and that was football. Um, and with all of that, um, still ended up being undrafted. Um, I like to blame it on an injury in the fourth quarter of, of my bowl game, my senior year, all the way back in 2004, the Motor City Bowl. Um, but who knows if I would have been drafted if I got hurt or not, if I had not gotten hurt. So, um, you know, kind of came up the hard way as far as, you know, getting into college and then getting into the NFL, uh, bounced up and down from the practice squad my first couple of years in the NFL. And um, the 2007 season, so my third year in the NFL was kind of the season where I started playing consistently. I started some games that year um, and, and the rest, it kind of took off from there. Um, I think I'm a prime example of, of somebody who was um, 
you know, tried to do as best as I could all the time. And even when I did that, it wasn't quite good enough. So I went back into the lab and I worked harder. Um, nothing was ever given to me throughout my career, really in my life. I've had to work for every single thing that I've gotten and probably harder than a lot of other people just because I'm a smaller guy, right? I'm not, I'm not a 6'5", 220 pound receiver. I'm 5'10", 185. So I've had to basically accentuate my strengths and always work on my weaknesses. And the, the thing that was the weakest for me was my size. And I couldn't really work on my size. So I had to make sure that everything else was on point and, and in order. Um, and I, I've always been very confident. I think that started with karate, um, you know, being, being able to defend myself or, or uh, always believing that I have a chance. Um, and that's something that I think has propelled me throughout my life um, is, is not necessarily needing somebody to tell me how great I am, but just going out and showing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could go on and on and on, but so um, Super Bowl champion 2009 for the Saints, um, which was actually probably my toughest year as a pro, even tougher than the, those seasons when I was up and down from the practice squad, getting cut. Um, I was cut five times in my NFL career. Um, but that year in, in 2009 was the toughest because I missed nine games. And so it was a constant struggle of just trying to get back onto the field and something happening over and over and over again. Um, and it just, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, the, the stress um, or the pressure um, that goes along with being injured in the NFL, it is not a, uh, a comfortable place to be. Um, there's always eyes on you. There's always people asking you questions. When are you going to be back in the fold? When are you going to do X, Y, and Z? How much longer do we have to wait for you? Then there's always the option for the coaches to be able to put you on the injured reserve, which back in those days, the injured reserve venture season was over. So I was constantly worrying that, dang, I'm not going to be able to play on this team that could potentially win the Super Bowl. Um, but uh, found a way late in the season to get healthy enough to be able to play in the playoffs and play in the Super Bowl and make plays in the Super Bowl and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it could potentially be one of your questions, but what did, what did it feel like to win a Super Bowl? Um, like a movie, uh, honestly, um, you know, it's a, it's a, the feeling of goosebumps, but for like a long time. I mean, that's, that's kind of like how it felt in the moment. And then even, you know, weeks, months after that, it still kind of felt the same way. Like, man, this is crazy. This is like a movie, um, you know, from a team that in my rookie year, was displaced because of Hurricane Katrina. We lived in San Antonio. We were three and 13. We were literally the bad news bears of the NFL. Every week we had somebody or somebody's being arrested. I mean, just crazy stuff going on, people fighting. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. So from that in 05 to, you know, basically the, the peak of the mountaintop in, in 2009, as far as, you know, winning the Super Bowl, um, I've seen it, you know, from the lows, the lowest of the lows to the highest of the highs. And basically everything in between, you know, just being a guy that's always constantly had to fight for every single thing in the NFL from day one until the day that I retired. Um, you know, it really is cool to look back and kind of see the, the process, um, you know, where I came from, how I got to, to the point that, you know, the different points that I got to and, you know, just really uh, being appreciative and, and never, ever taking for granted what, what I was able to do in, in a life that, you know, 99.99999% of people will never get to experience. That sounds, wow, that was, 
quite the first answer there. That really was a hard hitter there. Um, let's kind of focus in on your early life here a little bit. What was life growing up like for you and that sibling rivalry with your brother? Yeah, so he's three years younger. So, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't it was necessarily as much a rivalry, a rivalry as it was me dominating him, um, you know, and really everything. But but I honestly I honestly think that that's, that's the reason why my brother ended up being like so tough and so good at everything is because I beat up on him. I mean, you know, not, not necessarily just beating up him, you know, like in karate and stuff, but like all the sports, you know, just being bigger and being older, um, you know, was an opportunity for him to kind of compete up and then, you know, be better than all the people around him that are, you know, that, that are his age. So um, it was cool. And, and, you know, we're boys. So, you know, the boys fight and they argue and they, you know, do all yeah. that stuff. Um, so, you know, our, our, our situation wasn't any different and, and, you know, our, our dad always kind of instilled in us, you know, being the best at what you do. Um, and so it really wasn't acceptable to, to, to lose, um, especially in karate. It was just like, oh, you better not, you better not lose. Um, not to say that we'd be in trouble or anything, but, but the, you know, great greatness was expected of us. So, um, you know, we did whatever it took to, to make sure that we won every time out. And um, it's still like ingrained in me, like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Like if I'm making dinner, I'm trying to make the best dinner. If I'm vacuuming the house, I'm trying to be the best at vacuuming the house. Like that's just how I'm wired. Um, and it definitely has a lot to do with how I was brought up. Now, Lance, who was your favorite teacher growing up and what was your favorite subject? Uh, favorite teacher um, was probably my, my high school coach, um, Rocky Pintello. Um, he was awesome. I mean, he was he was more of like the the history teacher, even though history, I, lo I loved and enjoyed history. History wasn't my favorite subject. I, I'm a math guy. Like I've always loved mathematics. Um, you know, like I, I was always like ahead in school in math classes. My senior year in high school, I was in AP calculus, um, yeah. got A in that. And so I've always just been a numbers person and really, really enjoyed math. Um, but, but also history at the same time. I mean, my, my, coach and, and slash one of my history teachers in high school. I mean, he's just an amazing storyteller and, and just full of knowledge, you know, like somebody that I, I genuinely enjoy going to the class, not because, not just because he was my coach and we had a great relationship, but just because I loved hearing, um, you know, him talk about the things that have happened, you know, th throughout history. And, and so um, I made sure that when I was in those classes, I was attentive and, and um, always try to be like a sponge and taking as much information as possible. Now, you mentioned that um, you're a big math guy, and now you see more and more in the NFL, analytics is starting to play a part in what teams do. Can you kind of comment to us about what you think that's doing to the game? Yeah, you know what? I, I think it's a, a sign of the times, right? And, and I think football is behind the times as far as analytics goes. Like, I'm not sure if you guys have seen the movie Moneyball, but, but analytics yeah. has been around for, for quite some time in other sports, specifically baseball. And I think that it works better in a sport like baseball. Um, I just think there's too much variance or variables in the sport of football to, to really like live in that world. Um, you see the, the uh, Los Angeles Chargers coach, um, Brandon Staley, like he's like big analytics guy. Yeah. He's going off of what the analytics tells him what to do. And I feel like I would not be like that, like, extreme with it I, I think maybe I would use it as um a little extra piece of information but I, I don't know that I would ever base my decisions on what the analytics are telling me to do I mean that's just 
I don't know, this game has been around for such a long time, you know, before analytics and coaches have done a great job of making those decisions without somebody or something else helping them make those decisions. Uh, I'm not yeah. against it, but I, but I do feel like more times than not, at least nowadays, those analytics are steering people wrong. And it's like, mm-hmm. a guy is a genius if he gets it, you know, he, he does something and he gets it right. But then if he doesn't, it's like, man, why does this guy keep going to that well that's, you know, shooting him in the foot? So I'm kind of in the middle as far as the analytics goes. And, and I, I guess I would say if I were to be coaching today, I would be a little bit more old school in how I handle those situations. Can you talk to us about uh, how you got your start in football? Uh, yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I grew up in the karate school, um, you know, then came soccer, t-ball and basketball. And, and you know, we had always um, played football, you know, at, at home in the yard and stuff like that, but never played it, you know, on a team or organized football. Um, we had a team that was kind of starting up in our neighborhood and um, we asked our parents if we could sign up. And, you know, that was kind of like the first conversation we ever had about playing organized football, but they're like, yeah, you can sign up and play. Um, and it was very, <laughs> it was not an organized situation. Um, you know, just a, a bunch of neighborhood kids, a couple of coaches, two, two different groups of teams. And, you know, we played against a bunch of teams that had been around for a long time. We got our butts kicked for the entire season. But within all that, we still like I, I still had a blast. Like I loved it. And, and I was like, we stink and we might have only won one game. But like, I want to keep playing this and um, started out as a quarterback because I feel like I was probably the, the best player on the team and I was the smartest. So I could handle, you know, figuring out what was going on and, you know, calling the plays, running the plays efficiently and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I, I could have played quarterback, you know, a little bit longer, but luckily I got to high school and, and you know, the, the coaches were trying to basically try everybody out at all these different positions and, and they put me out a receiver or they put us all out receiver. We all ran one slant and I was the only person that caught the ball. So like, hey, you're our starting wide receiver. So um, I guess somebody knew something about me before I knew it about myself. So that's that's kind of how I got my start. And um, you know, love it, love it still to this day and miss it. So, um, you played your high school football down at Westerville, Westerville South. Do you have some favorite memories from playing down there? Favorite coaching stories? Oh, shoot. Favorite memories. Um, first game of my senior season playing in crew stadium, which I think crew stadium, Columbus crew stadium was a year old, my senior year or something like that. So it was like, the first year that they were playing a high school kickoff classic or something like that in crew stadium. Um, that was probably one of my best memories. Um, I ended up having five touchdowns in that game and like 200 yards or something like that. <laughs> something, something crazy, but um, you know, just playing in, in a huge stadium like that was just super cool. Um, let me think losing, winning our, winning that first game, then losing the next two, then rattling off seven straight. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, worst memories losing in the playoffs my senior year showing up to a home playoff game uh, against uh, Logan was the team that we were playing and they were purple and and for like four blocks before you even got to the school that there was cars parked everywhere and everything was purple and I was kind of like oh this is this is different <laughs> um and then we went out and got smoked I mean I don't, I don't remember what the final score was but we probably lost by 30 or something um, that's probably my worst memory, but 
honestly, like the memory of, of like playing with guys that you go to school with every single day that, you know, you know, their families, um, you know, guys that you hang out with on the weekends, um, you know, play other sports with, I mean, that, like I get goosebumps because I tell people all the time, like high school is the last natural level of football. Like there's, there's minimal politics. There's, of course, there's going to be some politics, but it's just, you're, you're still playing for the love of the game in high school. Everybody is. Um, some of us are fortunate enough to go to the next level and then you have to deal with, you know, all these other things in, in college. But um, as far as having minimal responsibility, um, playing with a bunch of guys that you grew up with and you genuinely love that you've known for most of your life um, and really like varsity blues. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen a movie, but it like there's a feel there's a there's such a like home feeling to like, like high school football. Even today, like when I go watch some of these local teams here in San Diego, I'm like, man, I miss high school football. Like I love college playing on TV. I love the NFL making money and winning the Super Bowl. But like high school just was different. And I, I, I genuinely miss high school football and the camaraderie that you had with the guys and um you know memories that that I'll always take with me now Lance could you talk to us a little bit about the recruiting process and what it was like being recruited in the early 2000s and how it compares to today yeah well, yeah I mean I, I don't know that it could be any different today than it was back then man like my mom made uh homemade VHS highlight tapes for me to send off to colleges. I mean, that was kind of like, that was that was the, the world that I lived in back then. Um, you know, there was no huddle or, or max preps or like any of those big time services for college coaches to be able to get access to players. It's like, okay, a coach is either coming to watch you in person or you've got to send tapes off. I mean, this is before DVDs and all that stuff. Like you, you had to, dub tapes and send them out to schools. And, and a lot of the time they're getting so many tapes. I mean, it's, it's rare that a coach is even watching your stuff. You know, they're, they're going to have to hear about you through some word of mouth or some other service where, you know, they're showing up at games and they're right, doing write-ups of players um, or your accolades, right? They're, they're always going to hear about the people that are all state or all conference or all district and stuff like that. So um, you had to go to camps back then. Um, I think going into my junior year, I went to like, I went to the Ohio State camp, I went to the Miami University camp, and, and uh, maybe the Kent State camp, but it, like just three local Ohio camps to like try to get my name out there a little bit. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I was all conference as a junior, but not like what I would have turned, you know, what I was going to turn out to be, you know, the next year. So I started to get letters and stuff like that where, where, you know, a lot of it's just the informational thing. There was no scholarship offers or anything like that, but, but schools like uh, Dartmouth or Arkansas State or like just like a lot of smaller schools were reaching out to me back then. But by the time my senior year came, I was getting letters from, from everybody in the Midwest, the East Coast, um, a little bit of Southern schools, not too much West Coast. It was, it was harder for those schools to kind of get catch wind of what's going on all the way out in Ohio back in those days. Not to say that it was impossible because there was guys on my high school team that were getting offered by everybody. Um, you know, a couple of guys that went to Ohio State and other schools. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a different world back then and, and um, basically a, a, a waiting game for, for most of us who weren't, you know, the, the highest of, you know, recruits back then. Um, 
and a little bit annoying because, you know, for somebody who had the, the type of success that I had, I, I figured I would have been getting recruited by or getting offers by a lot of schools. And that just was not the case. So, um, yeah, kind of slow motion for me. I got a ton of letters, but not offers, um, you know, and, and um, my mom made like this huge scrapbook scrapbook for me back in the day. And she put some of the, like the recruiting letters and stuff in there. And I'm like, why are you put that? Why are you putting that in there? Like, it's not, it's cool that Tennessee sent me a letter, but it's not saying anything other than, you know, we've heard about you. We'd love some information on you. And that was kind of it. So um, yeah, a different, a different day and age. And um, I can only imagine, you know, where my life would have taken me had I played in this era um, rather than, you know, 20 plus years ago. All right. uh, What advice would you give high school players on going to the next level? Uh, I think my, my, First piece of advice would be to um, don't only pick a school for football um, or whatever sport. I, I think, you know, the academics is probably even more important than the sport that you're going to be playing. Um, now, if you only have one scholarship offer, I'm going to say take the money always. Um, but, but if you have multiple scholarship offers or you're looking at a bunch of different schools, like really think about what you're interested in doing beyond football, because if they've got a great program and whatever it is that you're wanting to do after you're done playing that sport, then you're in the perfect place. Um, that's one thing that like, I kind of regret now, not that I picked the wrong school, but looking back on my career in the NFL, the one thing that I, I guess I failed to do was have something in place for when I retired, because I retired a little bit sooner than I probably wanted to. Um, So I didn't have whatever was next prepared right away. And I think that's something that a lot of former players, whether you're in college or the NFL, um, once football is gone, it's like, dang, what is next? Like, what am I doing next? And so I dealt with a, a, a little bit of a time where it was like really, really stressful. And it was, you know, high anxiety and like, what, you know, what am I going to do with myself? Because I've had football for 20 plus years in my life. And now all of a sudden it's gone. Um, I think having something that you really love and enjoy to do, whether it's for a hobby or a career or whatever it may be, I, I say have that situation going long before you're done playing football or whatever sport it is that you're, that you're trying to play. Um, really, really, it's, it's, you don't have to even be specific with it. Like if you don't know what you want to do um, for the rest of your life or as a career, it's okay. But start thinking about that early on when you're in school and take a bunch of different classes to see what kind of things that you're interested in, um, because it will go a long way um, for your, in, in your mental health. You know, once, once football is gone or whatever, you know, the sport is, um, having something, and people always say having something to fall back on. I, I don't necessarily like to use, you know, falling back on. I, I like to say having something planned for what's next, um, because it doesn't necessarily have to be a fallback. You could be a player that's like, hey, I'm just going to go to this school. I'm going to be on the football team. I may or may not play, but I'm going to get this free education. So your career is not a fallback at that point. Your career is your career. So, um, yeah, just having having something kind of in place. Um, for when, whenever, you know, you're done playing your sport. So Lance, you kind of mentioned like bouncing around and not having a plan that kind of leads me into our next question. What's your take on the NIL and the transfer portal these days? Um, I mean, I love it. <laughs> like, I, I think it's, it's uh, NIL is long overdue. 
Um, obviously, the NCAA is going to complain about, you know, how much or where it's coming from. And for me, it's it's been hard to watch the NCAA and these schools and these coaches make all this money and the players not ever be able to capitalize on what's going on around them or what they're doing on the field. Because last time that I checked, people aren't buying tickets to go watch Nick Saban play football. They're really not buying tickets to watch Nick Saban coach either. They're buying tickets to go watch those kids play. And so those kids are the ones that are putting 11 or $12 million per year in his pocket. So why is it that everybody else is able to capitalize on what these young men are doing, but they're not? So I understand there's got to be some sort of regulations, whatever. But for me, even though there's not regulations, I still love it because I love these kids being able to monetize their name, image, and likeness and finally make some money while everybody else has always been making money around them. You know, it's just, to me, it makes too much sense. I don't know how you like reel it in and fix it or whatever, but it's not going backwards. I know that much. Like the NCAA can't come in and say, okay, now NILs are, are illegal. Like that's not happening. Like everybody else has been able to capitalize on these guys and now it's their turn. And so I love, I love the fact that the players are now able to get paid. Um, the transfer portal, hey, I mean, it is what it is. Like a normal student can go to school and decide the next year he wants to go somewhere else and decide the next year he wants to go somewhere else and the next year he wants to go somewhere else. And there's still not any kind of penalty for him. So why can't a football player do it? Why should a football player have to sign his name on the dotted line and commit himself for four years somewhere, even if the school doesn't want him, even if the school is, has no plans on playing him, even if his coach doesn't like him? Like, There's so many different reasons why I think the transfer portal is cool. I do think there's a little bit of a problem with it because every single year there seems to be more and more kids in the portal and there's going to be less and less scholarships because every year there's more kids coming out of high school. So it's going to be harder to, to be one of those scholarship landing players. But, hey, I'm for movement. If, if a guy is not comfortable somewhere, he's not wanted somewhere, and he just wants to be somewhere else, it shouldn't matter. They should be able to transfer. They should be able to play right away. They shouldn't have to wait, and there should be no penalties for it. So I'm, I'm all for both sides. I do think it's a, it's a risk, though, for guys you know, entering the portal if, if you're not highly sought after. Yeah, for sure. And like, what well, what advice would you give to like incoming freshmen potentially like being careful for schools that are bringing in a lot of portal guys? Well, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, right? I mean, every every school is going to have uh, a new recruiting class. They're going to jump into the portal and see if they can get some guys that probably can play for them right away. I wouldn't worry about that. I would worry about the things that you can control. That's making sure that you're on time everywhere that you go. That's making sure you're prepared for whatever it is that you need to be doing, whether it's a workout, a meeting, a practice. Um, talk less. Um, and ask more questions. Um, what else? Uh, work as hard as humanly possible, but don't kill yourself. So there's kind of a fine line, right? Like if you're, if you're playing, you're not going to be wanting to do too many extra workouts, but if you aren't playing and you're red shirting or there's, you know, people playing in front of you, just make sure that you're doing everything that you can so that when your time comes, if it comes, you're ready, right? The, the old saying, stay ready. So you don't have to get ready. I mean, that's couldn't be more true in, in, in college football. 
Um, a little bit, a little quick story about my freshman year. Um, I went to Toledo with my high school quarterback. He was a walk-on. I was a scholarship guy. And we got there in the first day. He didn't get any reps at quarterback. There was a junior college transfer, a scholarship guy, and a preferred walk-on. He was just a regular walk-on. So he was basically four on the depth chart. He didn't get any reps. And that night he packed his bags and went home after one day of freshman camp. And so I was left there alone. So all I did was dive in the playbook. I didn't have anything else to do. School wasn't in session. I didn't have any time to be doing anything social. So I literally was just in my playbook all night, waking up in the morning in my playbook before practice or workouts and everything like that. And somehow, some way, I was hoping that I was going to redshirt. But I was a guy that when somebody was tired in practice or somebody went down, they would throw me in and I would know what I was doing at every single wide receiver position. And they're like, man, this dude is kind of sharp. This dude knows what he's doing. But I knew what I was doing because I put the time in. And I, I knew that at some point an opportunity in the game was going to come. I was hoping that it was going to be not until the next season so I could redshirt because there was older guys in front of me. But sure enough, week two, somebody goes down, they throw me in. And I ended up being one of like three or four true freshmen to play in that season. Um, and we went on to win the MAC championship that year. So it wasn't like I was on some terrible team. I was on a really, really good team and ended up playing because I was prepared. I put in the time and the effort outside of, the facility outside of practice or the meeting rooms to make sure that I was ready whenever my number was called. And that's something that I think a lot of guys, um, you know, think that maybe because of who they are, where they came from, or what kind of, how many stars they have, that something's going to be handed to them. And I, I say, don't wait for anything to be handed to you. Go out and take it. Do everything that you can to put yourself in position and be ready when that, when your number is called. And um, you know, I'm a prime example of that, not just in, in college, but in the NFL as well, because an injury or, or bad play was the reason why I was able to get in there in the first place. Yeah. Could you uh, tell us about your time at Toledo as a whole? Um, yeah, I mean, my time at Toledo was cool, man. I, like I was I was fortunate to come in um, as a freshman on a team that was really good the year before that I got there. And, and um, it, it was a, a new head coach, Tom Amstutz. Um, who had been there for a long time. He was a defensive coordinator before that. Um, but, you know, usually in college and in the NFL, when you've got a new head coach, it's because the previous coach got fired because the team stunk. Well, that wasn't the case with Toledo. They won the Mac West the year before, uh, or I think they shared the Mac West the year before. So I came in on a team that won 10 games the pr previous year. Um, worked my way onto the field as a freshman. Um, you know, wasn't playing as much or catching as many balls as I would have liked, seeing as I came from, you know, my senior year catching over 100 balls. Um, and then, you know, my sophomore year ended up playing a little bit more. My junior year, I led the country in catches. Um, I was first team all-conference. Um, and then my senior year, um, you know, first team all-conference, uh, honorable mention all-American, academic all-American, um, but got hurt um, in, the, in the fourth quarter of a pretty meaningless bowl game that year. Um, and that really, you know, kind of jeopardized my stock as a, as a potential draft pick. Um, and, you know, that that was kind of like the what should have been the icing on the cake my senior year, you know, going coming out and going to the NFL kind of really put a, um, you know, black eye on, on the end of my career there. But, um, you know, everything ended up working out and, you know, went to the combine. I didn't didn't work out at the combine because I was still hurt. Um, but, you know, we had our pro day at Toledo and. Um, did enough to get some calls after the draft. Um, and so um, I would say my, my career at Toledo was awesome. I wish that I would have, 
I wish it would have been a more current time because back in those days, they didn't allow you to take summer classes at Toledo, like for whatever reason, I don't know. I would have loved to graduate it while I was there. Um, but I went back and got my degree. Um, I graduated 2013 um, in December. So I was actually taking classes for two seasons. Um, I was playing and taking classes um, the 12 season, the 12 summer, and then the 13 season. Um, I, I think I had two, three classes um, to finish up my degree in the 2013 football season. So I was doing NFL stuff all day and then coming home and doing homework at night. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy that I graduated. I, I wish I wish that I would have been able to do it sooner. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. So you mentioned uh, Coach Amstutz there. Can you talk to us a little bit about your relationship and what kind of a coach he was for you? Yeah, Coach, coach Amstutz was awesome, man. He was just like high energy, upbeat, um, just just cool, super cool guy, you know, awesome to be around. He hosted a coach's show. So if you were, you know, kind of like the player of the week, um, he would take you downtown and, you know, you'd, you'd be on the radio and you'd eat chicken wings together. I mean, just just a likable guy, you know, not not a – not a super rah-rah guy, didn't yell and cuss at guys too much. I mean, that wasn't his style. He was more of like on the relationship level. He wanted to have a relationship with his guys. And I, I think that's important, you know, just having a coach that you can trust and a coach that you genuinely like, it's a lot easier to go out there and play for him. And, um, you know, super cool guy. I mean, just a, a great story, born and raised in Toledo, played at Toledo, coached at Toledo for over 30 years and, um, you know, had a, had a good run as a head coach, won a couple of MAC titles and, you know, a guy that I keep in touch with a little bit these days as well. Now, what was it like playing in uh, front of some of the largest uh, crowds in uh, glass bowl history? Well, I mean, looking back now, it's not that big of a deal. You know, when you get to the NFL, you're playing on that stage. But back in those days, it definitely was cool. I mean, I you know, I remember getting maybe a couple thousand at our high school games from time to time, but not not anything like a 30,000 um seat stadium that's packed out where they bring in extra bleachers and stuff like we we, we were uh the 2003 season we were playing at home against Pitt and they were ranked ninth in the country that year and they came and I think we ended up having like 35 or 37,000 in, in that that game which was awesome like it, you know I had never played in front of that many people before and it was just like wow like this is what you kind of dream about when you're in high school like you know playing against a team that's in the top 10 in the country and then having that type of crowd there and the energy and um, yeah, super cool, super cool. But nothing, nothing quite to me touches beating the Dallas Cowboys in Jerry world when there's over a hundred thousand people there on Thanksgiving. Like that's, that was like, to me, that was like one of the coolest experiences as far as playing in front of that many people um, and, and really, you know, pissing off all those Cowboys fans, the, the most annoying fans in the world. Now, the 2004 MAC championship game was definitely one to remember for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that game for you? Yeah, I mean, that, that game we, we played against uh, Miami University and they had beaten us earlier in the season um, out in Miami. Um, and so for us, it was kind of like, this is going to be our get back. We're, we're, we're going to, you know, go out here and beat these guys. Cause we, we moved the ball up and down the field. We just didn't score enough points against them. And ah, take that back. We didn't get enough stops against them the first time. Um, but the second time, um, you know, played well, had some, had some good catches. And, and for me, it, like, that was probably one of the most incredible games I've ever seen a quarterback have was my quarterback, 
Um, Bruce Gakowski broke two bones in his hand in the first half, and they basically shot him up and put a little break, not a brace, but put a little patch over the top of his fractures. And he played in that second half and just balled out, man. I mean, I think he had over 300 and had four touchdown passes and um, just incredible to be a part of that. Even though he was my roommate, I told him, throw me the ball every time anyway. Um, and he had balled out, you know, pretty much that whole season anyway. So just, just to see him kind of fight through. And it wasn't just that. He actually separated or dislocated his left shoulder like in the first or second drive in that game too. So he had a bum shoulder and a broken hand and still went out and just just played lights out. So cool to play in that game and obviously make plays. So obviously mentioning Bruce, the Mac has had a lot of uh, NFL talent while you were at Toledo. So it was you, Bruce, and Hawk, and then uh, Big Ben in Miami, uh, Sante Samuel at UCF, uh, Josh Cribbs at Kent State, and then Larry Fitz at Pitt. Do you feel like that was the Mac golden era? Uh, I mean – but potentially, I think that was I was there around the time that the Mac first started playing games on weeknights. So we're in my office. Where is that thing? Well, somewhere in here, I have a uh, printout of it's actually right here. It's a humble brag. So it's like it was in Sports Illustrated. And it says oh, Tuesday, wow. Tuesday yeah. Night Lights. And that was us walking out. And so. It says Tuesday night lights and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. So like we were the first era of those games, you know, they call it Maction now, but we were, we were midweek Maction. Like that's, that's when it started with us. And so I guess you could potentially say like, you know, we, we, it was the, you know, the golden era of, of Mac football, but I think the Mac conference is, is getting a lot more respect nowadays than, than it probably did 20 years ago. Um, and that's because of the success of, of a bunch of the guys that have come from the Mac to, um, I mean, even guys before myself, I mean, Byron Leftwich, which I guess he wasn't that much before me when I played against him in college, but Jason Taylor, uh, Miami Dolphins defensive end. I mean, those guys kind of paved the way um, for guys like us to, to, to make it to the league and, and kind of show that it's not everybody that plays in that level is not lower level players, if that makes sense, that, that we belong in the NFL as well. And um, just a, just a cool time to, to play for sure. Now you went undrafted out of Toledo. You kind of mentioned that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Yeah. And did it put a ship on your shoulder? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, that, I, like I was, I was hurt. So like, that was kind of, I guess my built built in excuse, like if it didn't work out, well, I was hurt. So it didn't work out. So um, but I kind of put that behind me. Um, I knew that I had the ability to, to play at the next level. It's just a matter of getting healthy and then getting an opportunity. So ended up having shoulder surgery in January of 2005. Um, went through the rehab process. Um, my agent and I kind of developed a really good plan as far as getting ready for my pro day because we knew I couldn't work out at the combine. Um, did my thing at the pro day and then it was just kind of wait, um, you know, see, see what was going to happen. And um, there was always a possibility, like we talked, like, hey, you might not get drafted, but if you don't get drafted or when you don't get drafted, we're going to have opportunities somewhere. We just have to pick the right place. Um, and so I had teams calling me during the draft. The Bills called me during the draft. Um, the Bengals called me during the draft. Both teams said that they were going to draft me. Both teams had multiple picks in the later rounds, and um, it just didn't end up working out. Um, so after the draft, my, my agent and I were on the phone. He's like, I got the Bengals, I got the Bills, and I got the Browns. I was kind of like, well, the Browns, huh? Um, and we looked at the rosters of receivers for each team. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like Cleveland could have potentially had the best opportunity for me. 
Um, and uh-huh. so I ended up signing with the Browns, $2,500 signing bonus. I felt like I was rich. Uh, I had never <laughs> seen that kind of money in my life, even though that $2,500 was about 17 something after taxes, I didn't care. Still more money than I had ever seen in my life. And um, I didn't care what everybody else around me was making. I, I was still driving my 1993 baby blue Dodge Spirit in and out of that uh, parking lot with all the Bentleys and the Mercedes and the Lamborghinis and stuff. I didn't care. I wasn't there to try to be flashy or to try to like compete with the Joneses. I was there to like work and, and show that I belong there and, and hopefully get an opportunity there. Um, that didn't end up working out for me there. I got cut after the third preseason game, but for me, it was like, okay, I'm right back to the lab. I'm working again. I'm, I'm, I'm honing in on my craft. I'm working the techniques and I'm making sure that I'm staying physically fit and in shape and ready for another opportunity. Um, and then when the saints called me, I mean, week going into week four of the 2005 season, that, that, that I knew that I was going to be there for a long time. I just didn't know that, you know, the, the journey was going to be the way that it was, but I knew that I was not going to let that second opportunity pass me up without doing something more than what I did in Cleveland. Now, Lance, could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like being in the NFL and like the daily grind for an NFL player? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, look, nobody really knows what all the life of an NFL player entails unless you are like, you know, you're related to somebody that played or you're friends with somebody that played, it is a job. Like it, it's, it's, that's the number one thing. Like you, you are not um, there because you have to be, you're there because they want you to be there. But from the day that you get there, they're trying to replace you. They're trying to get younger. They're trying to get cheaper and they're trying to get better. So mm-hmm. you've got to approach it with that type of mentality. Like, man, they're trying to replace me. So I've got to make sure that I do every single thing that I can to show them that I'm not replaceable or that I'm not replaceable yet because we all get replaced at some point. Um, so yeah, it's a job and it's, it's not just what you see on Sundays. People would always say, Oh man, you play a game for a living. I'm like, yeah, I, I play on Sunday, but you don't see what I'm doing on Monday through Friday. You don't see what I'm doing on Saturday to prepare for Sunday. Like it is a grind. It is, it is a legit job it is not a 40 hour per week job you're probably putting 60 to 80 hours in depending on where you are and it's not all practice a lot of people think like oh man you must be practicing five or six hours a day like no that's not how it works we're in the meeting rooms more than we're anywhere else um meetings 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 it's like a classroom setting right you've got a teacher or your coach who's up in front of you who's installing who's talking about the game plan or talking about the defense that you're going to be playing the specific players you're taking notes there's written tests in most places that you go at the end of the week so it'll be a test about the opponent that you're playing that week um it is very very school centric um and i tell kids all the time when i go to speak to them like you can't just be good at football. Like this school stuff, it doesn't stop once you leave college. Like you're going to be in a classroom setting every single day when you're in the NFL, if you make it that far. And so if you only want to focus on football and you don't want to pay attention to your academics and your studies and your teachers and stuff like that, you're not going to make it in the NFL because there's just as much of a mental grind in the NFL as there is a physical grind. I would say it's even more mental than it is physical because everybody is physically gifted once you get to that level. It's, it's the ones that are mentally tough. It's the ones that are the smartest. And it's the ones that figure out kind of their, their routine or a plan each and every week are the ones that are going to stick around the longest. 
Now, you said you were cut multiple times. Uh, how do you bounce back from that? And uh, what was it like working with new teams and new playbooks? Yeah, so getting cut, I mean, it's a part of the business. It's disappointing. It sucks. You, you, you cry about it if, if, if that's how you feel. Um, but, I mean, there's not time to sulk. There's not time to, like, be like, oh, man, what if? Or maybe I should have done X, Y, and Z. You just go back to work. And hopefully you've got a good enough agent or a good enough tape around to be able to give yourself another opportunity. Um, and for me, you know, four of those times I didn't want, you know, obviously I didn't want to be cut. One of those times I asked for a release, but I mean, it still was, you know, me getting cut. Um, but it's, it's a part of the business. Um, and, and you can't let it, that situation impact you too much going forward, um, other than positively. Um, cause if you sit back and, and, you know, cry about it too long or sulk in it, um, you know, then, then, you know, you might not be able to get the best out of yourself whenever that next opportunity comes. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a part of my story and, and, um, I feel like everything happens for a reason. And I definitely am, am, am thankful that I got cut by the Browns when I got cut by the Browns. Um, cause then I, you know, I potentially wouldn't be talking to you guys today. I wouldn't be a Super Bowl champion. I wouldn't be in the saints hall of fame. Definitely I mean, all these things happened sure. as a result of me being cut by the Browns. What was your response like initially? Like, what did that day look like the day you got cut? The first time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was at, right after the third preseason game in Cleveland. And up until that point, I had one catch for two yards. And I had only played about, you know, 15 plays in three games or something like that. So the writing was kind of on the wall. I was hoping that I was going to be a guy that could stick around for the fourth preseason game because that's usually when the young guys get most playing time. I was like, man, this, I'm going to kill it in this last game. Well, I didn't get that opportunity. Um, and the cut guy in every single organization is called the Turk. And as we were walking into the facility in Berea, I could see the Turk waiting outside. I'm like, he's looking in our direction. I don't know which one of us he's looking at. And then in my head, I'm like, dang, he's looking at me. And, it's, and sure enough, he's like, Lance, uh, coach needs to see you take your playbook upstairs. And I knew, I mean, there, there was nothing I could do about it. He said, hey, we love to have you on our practice squad. But, you know, for now, we got to let you go. And I just was, I was upset, man. I was like, my birthday was uh, either the next day or two, day, two days later. And so I was just like, like, just so upset. But um, you know, I'm, I'm from Columbus. So I just drove two hours home to Columbus and kind of hung out. And I had uh, uh, the Toronto Argonauts blowing up my phone. Hey, we just saw you got released. What are you in, any interest in coming to Canada? And I said, yeah, no, nah, not right now. You know, I'm going to kind of wait and see if there's another opportunity on the horizon for me in the NFL. And um, thankfully, I, I got another opportunity a few weeks later. So it, it, it was uh, it sucked. But, uh, but after that, I, I Took a couple of days off, ended up going back to Toledo and helping coach with the team, got back into classes and stuff. And, um, you know, while I was continuing to train and, and be ready for whenever I got a call. Now, Lance, the average NFL career is three years and you were able to parlay yours into 10 plus seasons. What do you mainly contribute that to? Is it a nutrition thing and how big of a role was nutrition and diet in your playing career? Well, uh, I mean, I'm the bad, I'm the worst guy to ask about nutrition and diet because I'm 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 small and I'm running a lot. So they basically were like, eat everything and like eat it again just to try to like keep my weight up. A lot of guys have problems keeping their weight down. I was I was the opposite. I would be like too small. And they're like, hey man, you need to eat like two dinners tonight just to try to keep my weight on. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I think it's uh, obviously it's, you know, skill and ability. I mean, you've got to have some of that. You've got to have a little bit of luck. Um, you've got to have a, a you know, strong mind um, and, and a type of personality that, that doesn't get rattled in adversity. Um, you know, you've, you, you've definitely got to be, I think you've got to be in, in some pretty good um, or the right situation um, to have a long career. Um, I got there the year before Sean Payton got to, got to New Orleans, but he came in and immediately I just, I, I went to work and I became one of Payton's guys. Um, and I knew, you know, as long as he was going to be there, I had an opportunity to stay there for a long time, as long as I was showing up every day. Um, but, but, but the main thing, and, and to, to cut that, this answer short, is showing up every day as if, and working as if I hadn't made it yet. Like that, that was, that was my mentality. Like, I don't care what year I'm in, what my contract says, how much money I have, what other accolades. I mean, I've had thousand yard seasons. I've, had, I've scored 10 touchdowns in a season. Like I've done those things, but every single day, no matter what, I showed up acting and working as if I still hadn't made it. Like I still have to make it. So I always had my grind face on. I was always working. Um, you know, that's not to say that I wasn't enjoying myself or having fun, but, but I just, I didn't want my lack of work to be the reason that I was no longer there. I wanted to make sure that I put in so much work that it would be hard for them to get rid of me. Could you uh, tell us what it was like playing with Drew Brees? And do you have any favorite Drew Brees uh, stories? Uh, I mean, shoot, man. Drew made my, made, made my career. Drew made my life as a receiver so, I'm not going to say easy, because it wasn't easy, but so much easier than it would have been had I played with a quarterback that, you know, wasn't an all-time great, wasn't a probably top five quarterback of all time. Um, he, he was so good at right place, right time, right ball placement. I mean, like it, it, it just not having to worry about getting your head knocked off every time the ball's thrown to you is like, I mean, I can't, I can't even explain how much that means to a receiver. Um, but just a super cool guy, a great guy to work with, to, to develop a relationship with. Like he lives out here in San Diego as well. And I see him from time to time. We play basketball together from time to time. Um, but like he really made my job a lot easier than it would have been had I had I played with a lot of other quarterbacks. And, um, you know, I still think he's the, the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, there's there's people who disagree and I, I would imagine a lot of people disagree. But I just I know what I saw on a day to day basis. Um, I know, obviously, what I what I experienced in the games with him and um, really just a, a dream come true. I, I, I was so fortunate, man. Like. I played with him. I played with Big Ben, who's probably going to be a Hall of Famer. I played with Stafford, who just won the Super Bowl last year, who will probably end up being a Hall of Famer. Like, I, I understand how fortunate I was in my career and how there are a lot of other men who have played this game for a long time who have never played with a quarterback on any of those guys' levels. So I, I definitely am appreciative and realized how blessed and fortunate I was to play with those guys. Now, you talked to us a little bit about Super Bowl 44 and what that was like for you. You ended up being a very pivotal role with an onside kick. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the decision on that and what that was like for you leading up to the game? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we worked on that onside kick pretty much all season. Um, but going into the Super Bowl, you know, there's, there's two weeks in between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl. And so we practiced a little bit that first week, but not a ton. But, but Coach Payton came in and said, we're, we're going to work 
gonna do this onside kick. We're gonna do this onside kick. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, all right, whatever. Because you, he says it every week. Like we're working, you know, this onside kick the whole season and he never calls it. So when he says it during the Super Bowl prep week, we're like, yeah, whatever, same thing. Like, okay, whatever. Um, and you're thinking we're only gonna use it if we need it. Like if we're down late and we needed the ball back to score to win or just tie the game, sure. Um, but fast forward to that week, we're in the game and we can't really get a whole lot going offensively. We're down 10, nothing. Then I think we're down 10, three, we come in at halftime and Sean's like, we're doing onside kick. And everybody's like, Oh shoot. Like we're, this is really about to happen. We're about to open the second half with an onside kick. Now I wasn't in on that play. I wasn't, I wasn't doing too much of special teams other than punt return back in those days. But um, just knowing and having my poker face on the sideline, making sure that I'm not giving it away. I mean, and I, I stood like right where the, the pile ended up being because I knew here's the ball's coming right here to our sideline. Um, and shoot, man, it's just, it, it's, uh, I get goosebumps thinking about that moment, just, just knowing how significant it was, knowing that the momentum started to turn a little bit before the half. When we got that ball, it was like, oh, not only do we have the momentum, but we're about to win this game. And there was still a whole half to be played. And obviously Peyton Manning was on the other side. So we didn't know, but that really helped kind of springboard us forward. And shoot, man, that was like one of the gutsiest play calls I can remember in NFL history from a guy who was just like, I'm just trying to win. And, and you love playing for a coach that has that mentality. Now, over the past five, 10 years, we've seen kind of like the onside kick percentage in the NFL drop drastically do you think the nfl needs to look into a change to like bring it back into the game well i mean i think it's it's changed because of health and safety right like back in those days like when you had an onside kick that was not a surprise like we when we called our onside kick it was a surprise onside kick so we're in a normal spread kickoff formation back at back in my day there used to be eight guys on one side and two guys on the other side you'd have a line of four guys that were just headbangers and blockers and then a line of four guys that were just recover guys or six and two or you know however your coach wanted to distribute those bodies and it was just just like head-on-head collisions so they they got rid of that to try to make the game a little safer and eliminate a lot of those full speed not head knockers coming I mean, because that's basically what it was i mean those front front line guys on both the recovery team and the team that was fielding were, they were just blockers. They just, the coach would say, all right, so this ball's kicked, you're going and you're blocking this guy, you're blocking this guy. And the, the, both sides have recovery guys. So it's, it's, it's smarter that it's, you know, like that now. And they're trying to, you know, kind of limit the number of concussions. But yeah, it's, it's definitely made a drastic impact as far as how many onside kick recoveries there are. I don't know how you make it different. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard some different rules like, hey, a team can go for it on fourth and 14 from whatever yard line. And if they if they convert, then they get to take over possession at wherever. Like I will be down for that. Um, something a little bit different that, that could potentially be a little bit safer. Um, but I don't know how many coaches would do that. You know, right. like it, your, your chances of converting on that down and distance are, are probably about the same as they were, you know, converting uh, an onside kick recovery. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wish that there was more recoveries, but um, maybe it's time for kickers to start developing some more crazy kicks. I don't know. So we're going to go back to Super Bowl 44 real quick. Can you uh, talk to us about that two point conversion catch you had? Sea ball, catch ball. I mean, that's. That's that's literally it. Like I've I've 
I would always say that's probably the single play that I'm known for most, at least in New Orleans. We're like, oh, two-point conversion, Mr. Two-point conversion, you made that crazy catch on the back of your head or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but that's probably not the best catch I've ever had. And the reason why that I caught that ball the way that I did was because I lined up a little bit too deep uh, in the initial line. Like I was supposed to be a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage. I wasn't supposed to be on the ball, but I was supposed to be closer to the line of scrimmage. So me being a little bit too deep puts the ball a little bit out in front of me more so than I probably would have wanted, which makes me have to make some kind of miraculous circus catch. Um, obviously come down with the ball, I'm over the goal line. And then as I'm getting, or as I'm turning over, the ball gets knocked out of my hands. And then I get up and like on film, you can kind of see me put my hands on my waist. And I'm like, did I catch? Like I was really like playing yeah, over my yeah. head. Like, did I catch that? I'm like, I know I caught that ball. Like, how did I drop? I know I didn't just fumble it. And so I'm running back to the sideline and coach Payton is like, did you catch that? Did you? Cause you know, back then you had to challenge those types of plays. And so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I caught it. Like, even though I really didn't know I caught it. I'm like, yeah, I caught it. Cause I was just like, well, here's my moment, you know? Um, and so he throws the challenge flag, they challenge it. And before they're, they're officially challenging it, they show it up on the jumbotron and you mm -hmm. could clearly see the corner as, as I was crossing the goal line, I was clearly there. I had possession, you know, with two hands or whatever. And he kind of kicks the ball out of my hand after the fact. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's again. I mean, that's clear right there. That's the two point conversion. Now you can see it and think it and believe it, but, but the reality is you still have to wait for the referee to, to validate those feelings and to verify that it was a conversion. Um, and once he did that, man, it was just like, whoo, like, thank goodness. Like, you know, I caught that. Thank goodness. It put us up seven points and thank goodness coach Payton doesn't have to rip me a new one after lying to him about catching the football. Um, but yeah, just, just a crazy play, man. Like one that, that, you know, obviously I remember forever, but, but like I said, most people um, who are Saints fans kind of remember me by that one. Well, when it was drawn up, were you the number one target on that play? Yeah, yeah, no, that was my play. Um, and, and that's a play that we ran pretty regularly in New Orleans in the red zone, as well as, you know, two-point conversions or third and shorts. I mean, I, I was the Q8 guy. It's called Q8. I was the Q8 guy, the sprint out, you know, kind of get open quick guy um, and, and convert those plays. And I've caught a bunch of those. I've caught some for touchdowns. I've caught other ones for two-point conversions, a bunch of them to uh, pick up first downs. And, um, yeah, I mean, as soon as, as soon as he called the person – L grouping. I knew what the play was and I knew it was like, all right, just go make this catch. I just couldn't, couldn't do it easily. I just had to make it a little bit more uh, dramatic. Now you mentioned coach Peyton screaming at you. Like, did you catch it? Did you catch it? Do you have any funny or memorable coach Peyton stories that you'd be willing to share with us? Coach Peyton is a lunatic, man. Like he's like super cool during the week. He's like the opposite of like what a coach should be. I think like usually the coaches during the week, should be like on you every single day. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're making sure that you have everything right. But then when you get to the game, they're chilling. If you need to be corrected, they correct you, but they know this is, this is the game. I'm not about to put too much on him. I'm not going to put things in his head where he's thinking something other than what's going on. Coach Payton is the antithesis of that. Like he's super cool during the week, cool as a fan. He gets in that game and it's like, what is going on with this dude? He's drinking Red Bulls. He's getting turned off shots. He's got a dip in. He's just like a crazy lunatic. He looks at you like he hates you if you drop a ball or something like that. And it's like, man, what is wrong with this dude? Like I've seen, he's he's looked at 
somebody or said something crazy to somebody before where I was like, dang, did he really just say that? And he's also done it to people where they looked at him back like, all right, you say something like that to me again, I'm going to throw you up in the stands. But I mean, he's just, he's, he, that's how he's wired. I don't, I don't know why he operates that way, but just a crazy, um, like, I don't even know what to like, how to explain his mind. Like it's always churning. He's always looking for information. He's always looking looking for an edge he's one of those guys that's just like almost too smart for his own good but he understands how to get the best out of his guys um and obviously it worked out for him I mean he you know won a Super Bowl won a ton of games in New Orleans um and uh whenever he's ready to coach is going to make a ton more money because he's proven that he's you know one of the best in the business now food is always a hot topic on our show here Lance um can you talk to us a little bit about the food in New Orleans and some of your favorite dishes and favorite restaurants down there? Yeah, man. I, like uh, to me, I'm like, I'm like a fat guy and like a little guy's body. Like I just, I love food. I love all kinds of different types of food. And, and New Orleans to me is like the, the culinary capital of America. Um, you could be in, you know, one of the biggest restaurants around in New Orleans, like a commander's palace, or you can be in a mom and pop shop sandwich shop restaurant that's as big as my office and you will still eat some of the greatest food that you've ever had. I'm a big fan of, of charbroiled oysters, um, which is basically oysters on a grill with like a butter Parmesan garlic sauce cooked over them. Um, those are probably my favorite. Um, but really, I mean, there's so much to eat in New Orleans, the beignets, um, the seafood, the mm -hmm. Cajun food. I mean, you name it, it's it's gumbo. I mean, every time we go to New Orleans, my wife and I go to a couple of different restaurants and everywhere we go, we're gonna try to gumbo just because it's just like one of our favorite foods. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I I enjoy going back to, you know, go to a game or to see the people that, I, that I've, you know, known for years there, um, just excited to eat as I do to do those things, so. Um, yeah, just the, just the greatest people and the greatest food, the greatest culture in the world. Lance, could you tell us one uh, word that you would use to describe New Orleans Saints fans and who that nation? Family. Family. It is really like you, you don't know it unless you go there and like sit in the stands for a game or you obviously play there or know somebody that's played there. It's not it's a different type of relationship with the Saints fans. And it's it really mm -hmm. feels like family. Um, when the Saints win, everybody is happy and everybody feels good. When the Saints lose, it's almost like the whole city, the whole area loses because they feel it. Like they really feel it on their hearts that, that they lost. And it's a we thing. It's not it's not the Saints. It's, it's us, you know, and um, it, it really it, I don't know. Shoot, obviously, there, the history there uh, with the Aints. Um, obviously, the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina. I mean, those type of situations kind of bring you together once you're good. Um, and so it's it's uh, definitely uh, one of the more unique places as far as, you know, the relationship goes with with the team and the fans. Now, we're going to head into one of our weekly segments. It's called Rank It. This is where we give you a topic and ask it to rank it one through five. Now, Lance, obviously over your long playing career you got to play in a lot of different cities and environments so joel and i wanted to know what your top five favorite fan bases are excluding the saints and the worst fan base in the nfl or well, worst the place worst to is play. dallas dallas <laughs> worst by far the worst. Then, then probably the 49ers are right there with the dallas fans okay um 
best fans outside of New Orleans, probably the Browns, Steelers, yeah. um, Lions have great fans. And I would have never known that had I not played there. They have amazing fans. The Chiefs have great fans. The Packers have great fans. The Bears have great fans. Um, the Rams have not so great fans. Um, who else's fans stink? The 49ers and the, and the Cowboys are the worst, like by far. The, the Cowboy fans are like, you would swear the Cowboys won the Super Bowl every single year for how the Cowboys fans act. Um, but yeah. Falcons fans aren't great either. Um, yeah, I don't know how many I named, but I named some good and some bad. <laughs> that's all. That's all we were asking for. So it's like, now is it Cowboys and then a, a deep hole and then the 49ers? They like one A, one B. Uh, yes, deep hole. Cowboys are by far the worst, and it's not even it's not even close. Yeah. Now, do you have a morning routine that you do nowadays, Lance? After your um, career's been over? Yeah. Wake up, get the kids ready for school, get them fed, get them to school, go to the gym. That's, <laughs> that's my routine. Like I, I, I that's uh, the, the gym part for me is, is part of like my mental health. I feel better after I work out. I feel better after I get a run in. Um, and then obviously the most rewarding thing is, you know, taking care of my kids. I mean, that's, Mm-hmm. That's the best part of the routine every day. Now, uh, what projects do you have going on, and are you doing any coaching? So I do I do individual sessions um, or group sessions with, with young wide receivers. Um, I work for the NBC affiliate in New Orleans called WDSU. I do live pre- and post-game shows for Saints primetime games. Um, we do weekly spots via Zoom like this where I'm on TV locally in New Orleans. Um, I do spot work for ESPN radio or NFL network or Sirius from time to time. Um, so the media thing is, is part of what I do. I, I do uh, speaking engagements or MC um, events. Um, I do the training thing as well. I've thought about coaching. Um, I think high school coaching would probably be the most fun, um, but I have young kids. So I'm not, I'm not quite ready to be away from home as much as would require, you know, me to be as, as far as being a full-time coach. Now, do you have like a favorite media gig that you've done so far? That's something you're like, that's been really awesome to be a part of. Uh, my current job, man, is super cool. Um, you know, getting to travel and go to, you know, some, some cool Saints games. Obviously this year hasn't been, hasn't been great because uh, the Saints aren't very good. Um, but it is a cool gig to, to be on TV and, but to still be, you know, heavily involved in new Orleans still, um, and talk about the team that I love, you know, that's, that's been super cool. Um, working in, you know, at serious radio NFL radio was, was kind of hard. Um, you know, radio is harder than TV. You can't see your face and see how you're emoting. So you've got to be overly descriptive. Um, but you have a little bit longer to, to speak on radio. Um, but I, I also had to be familiar with all 32 teams and, and you know, the whole 54 man mm-hmm. roster of all the teams and, and, you know, know about all the news that's going on. So that was a little bit more difficult. I, I enjoy talking about one team every week and then kind of diving into whoever they're playing um, as opposed to doing the, the national radio thing. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually studying now to take the agent certification exam 
um, in the spring. So that's kind of like the next step for me um, to be able to stay involved in the game, to be able to stay here in San Diego and help kind of mentor and bring up the next generation of, of, of you know, NFL players. I think that'll be, um, you know, rewarding and, and, you know, something that that will, you know, kind of get me up and going every single day. Now, you mentioned going to the gym. Do you have any other hobbies that you like to do or something that you're currently interested in? Yeah, for sure. I, I play basketball like four times a week. I'm in a couple of leagues here in San Diego. Um, I'm a big foodie. So, you know, finding different restaurants to eat at with my wife or my family. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what I do. I love to travel. Um, you know, don't don't get to do it all that often. Uh, it's a little bit harder <laughs> these days with kids in school and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of what I do. Different, different projects as far as, um, you know, business goals and investing and stuff like that. I'm, I'm very, very heavily involved with what's going on in my financial world and working with my financial advisor to try to maximize our returns on things that we have going on. And um, I always tell people, like, I don't have a nine to five job, but I work hard um, every single yeah. day at, at trying to get the most out of what we've got going on. Now, do you have like a list of your top five restaurants in San Diego that tourists must come see or that people in San Diego might not know about? Look, they're always changing. And like the best, the best way that like I can like hear of restaurants is like on Instagram. So I go on Instagram, San Diego foodies, and like they always have like new great restaurants. Um, you know, we're known for having really good authentic Mexican food here. There's several restaurants that have amazing Mexican food. Um, you know, authentic tacos and stuff like that. Not your, not your Taco Bell, not the Taco Bell, but those aren't authentic tacos. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, places here have like the real deal, um, you know, and it's, 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 we really like are a melting pot. Like there's all kinds of great restaurants that are different types of food. Um, and, and I don't even know that I have like favorites. Um, I just like to try everything and, and um, you know, you can, mm -hmm. there's no shortage of great food here. So, uh, Lance, in your free time, do you watch a lot of football? Uh, yes, I, I would say I watch a lot of sports. I mean, I watch everything. I watch football. I watch basketball. I watch, you know, baseball more so as it gets closer to the playoffs. I was at a bunch of the Padres playoff games this this uh, this past postseason, which were awesome. Like, I had never been to a playoff game other than any playoff game that I've played in myself. Um, and just yeah. the energy and everything in there was electric. Um, I've been playing a little bit more golf since COVID. Um, so I watch golf, like really, really like intently now, like just trying to get any kind of little, little tips and pointers that I can get from these guys who are way, way like astronomically better than I am. Um, but yeah, I watch, I watch everything. Like I, I, I would say I probably enjoy watching college football more than the NFL. That's just kind of always been how I am. Um, but I do enjoy watching NFL football as well, for sure. Now, how do you say the environment versus playing in a playoff game versus watching a playoff game in the crowd was for you? Uh, you know what? P playing in it, I would say, is easier because you can directly impact what's going on in the game. Like, being a fan is hard. Like, I, I, I totally understand how most fans feel these days. Like, I mean, especially since I've retired. Like, like you know, I'm, I'm pro Saints and I'm watching all the Saints games and I want them to do well and I can't have any impact on the game. So it's frustrating and it, it like upsets me when something goes wrong or a guy drops a ball. I'm like, dang, I would have caught that. 
So it is harder for sure. Like being actually out there and being able to impact the game, I would say is a little bit easier. Now you mentioned that you're a big um, college football guy. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your thoughts are ahead of the uh, college football playoff? Well, I mean, I think, I think hands down, Georgia is the best team going into the playoffs, but all four of these teams are really, really good football teams. Um, and it's not necessarily about what you've done coming up to this point. It's about that particular matchup on that particular day. Um, my saying for NFL games is any given Sunday, meaning any team can beat any other team. It doesn't matter who they are. If the, if the team that's allegedly better doesn't show up and play like they're the better team, they will lose to the team that has the worst record in the NFL. That's just how it is. And I feel like these final four teams, it's, that's, that's, that's the situation. If Georgia shows up and doesn't play the way that they've played for the last two years or Ohio State sees something on film that they can take advantage of, then Ohio State can beat Georgia. I'm an Ohio State guy. Grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I would love for them to win. I don't necessarily think they will. Um, but And the same goes for TCU and Michigan. Michigan's going to be without their starting running back, but we saw uh, what, what the, the, the backup running back did against Ohio State. Yeah, so he's more than capable. But TCU – only lost one game this season. So like they're, they're capable and they're deserving of being there. I would imagine we're going to see Georgia versus Michigan for the national title. And I think we're going to see Georgia repeat. Um, but like I said, I'm an Ohio State guy. So I'm hoping that Ohio State shows up and plays their best game of the year and shocks the world and then gets an opportunity to play Michigan for the national championship. That would be sweet revenge, beating them and winning a national championship. So my, my, my mind says Georgia, my heart says Ohio State. Recently, I had uh, seen a tweet where someone said culture eats scheme for breakfast. What, what are your thoughts on that statement? Culture eats scheme? Yeah, for yeah, breakfast. Correct. Uh, I mean, you, you could have a great culture, but you could have – you could be lacking in talent. So I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I, would, I would go uh, – what I like to say is, is players – over scheme, right? So you you rely on your players more so than you do your, your specific scheme. If you've got a guy or a quarterback that's good at X, Y, and Z, but you're trying to run A, B, and C, you should probably start running X, Y, and Z because you're going to get the most out of him. Um, I think culture is important. Um, but if you've got a, a bad culture and, and – um, or excuse me, if you've got a really good culture and not – very good talent, then the scheme isn't really going to matter, you know? So I, I, I've always felt like players over scheme. That's, that's kind of where I, you know, reside with that. Now, now typically we do a segment on the show called flashback where we review a hot topic or controversial take that our guests have, and we're kind of going to do something similar with you here, Lance. So do you have anything that you're excited or passionate about that you wouldn't mind sharing with us or a hot take in sports? The Lakers are going to win the NBA title. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yes. I I said it. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's this roster, but I do believe that there's going to be at least a trade for the Lakers and don't sleep, man. I'm telling I've, I've been a Lakers fan since Kobe Bryant's rookie year. So I'm not one of these, Oh, LeBron went to the Lakers. Now I'm a Lakers fan. Like I've been, I'm a big Kobe guy. Um, God rest his soul. But 
I, I truly, truly think that the Lakers are going to do something special and could potentially shock the world. Yes, hot take. You heard it here first. That, that is a very hot take, considering they're what four games under five hundred, and Something they got like Russell Westbrook coming off the bench, who cannot do anything productive. But Anthony Davis <laughs> is getting better. But I that that's exactly what we were looking for. I got to be there honest, go. that, that delivered. All right, Lance, we have one final question for you. What is one word that you would use to describe yourself? Um, huh. Passionate. I'm passionate about the people that I love, uh, the things that I do. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we, we only get one time here, and mm-hmm. um, I'm passionate about, you know, what I can leave behind, the memories that I can leave behind for people. And um, I truly believe it's about the impact that we can have while we're here. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not about, um, you know, half-stepping anything. I'm about, you know, you know, going hard at everything that I do and um, hoping that I can make people smile when they think about me when I'm no longer here. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm about. It's, it's not all about us. It's about the impact that we can have on those, um, that got a chance to know us or a chance to be around us. Well, thank you for that, Lance. And thank you for joining us today and coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk to a few high school students on our small podcast really says a lot about who you are as a person. And we can't thank you enough for coming on the episode. We'll be sure to let all our fans know about what a great experience this was for us. And I'm sure they'll be happy to listen to us when we post this on all of our Spotify and social media. And we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Joel, you know what time it is. What do you always say to end the show? To the moon, baby. To the moon. This has been a Jacket Sports Network episode of Inside the Hive.